Welcome to Movie House Sports Psychology, the podcast where we look at your favorite movies and TV shows through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. I'm Dr. Jason Von Steetz, a licensed psychologist specializing in clinical and sports psychology. If you're interested in how psychological principles apply to your favorite fictional characters, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Movie House Sports Psychology. I have another uh, Halloween edition, another another spooky episode uh, featuring friend of the show, Dr. Taylor Neff, or as I've come to um, uh, know her, uh, a.k.a. the Doctor of Horror. Taylor, thank you for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Happy to be part of this Halloween-themed series. Mm-hmm. Big fan of the spook time (laughs) (laughs) fantastic that was very scary when you said that i was terrified (laughs) (laughs) so today we're talking about the 1982 classic the thing uh directed i and maybe written, I probably should have looked into that ahead of time, but directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell, among among others. Uh, it's kind of an ensemble cast, um, but awesome movie. Uh, and, and for me, this this is a movie that I didn't watch a lot of growing up. I don't think I ever watched it until only a, f- a few years ago. And that's kind of surprising for me because I watched Alien, Aliens, uh, Poltergeist, um, all the '80s classics, for, you know, uh, Freddy Krueger, Jason, uh, all, all those movies. And for some reason, I just missed the thing. But then I watched it more recently as an adult. Thought it was awesome. Um, loved it. Uh, wish I would have watched it a long time ago. Uh, but what's what's your history? Uh, what's your relationship to this movie, Taylor? Doctor Taylor. Yes, that's that's so interesting, actually, that you say that, that you've watched all of these other classics and, and era particular movies, but this one escaped you. I wonder mm-hmm. why that happened. But I I did watch it. I was trying to think if it was like middle school or high school that I would have seen it. It was probably early high school. And for me, my, my dad in particular did a really good job um, and I say it was a good job because this is clearly important to me now, sure. like introducing me to a lot of movies um, and like the good stuff from yeah. from eras that are earlier. And I see this contrast between even me and my husband that if I say something is from the 80s, he's like, that's an old movie. Oh, it's boy. like, but you don't. But they are they're They're practically a modern movie in the way that they were so groundbreaking at the time. And to me, this is one of those movies. It holds up. Um, and I'll say more about this later, but the effects hold up, the story holds up, you know, the acting's great, it's yeah. it's tight. We, You and I were talking about this before we started, that it's got a, a, a an efficient runtime. You know, there's no time wasted in telling the story. So all of that to say, I, I watched it in high school, and then it's, it's one of those movies that has been on in the background from time to time. It'll be showing on TV, so I'll see bits and pieces but I think I've only seen it all the way through two or three times with this being the second or third time, um, which I was actually surprised that it was as relatively short of a movie as it was. Cause 
I think it's held in my mind as like this grand story. Mm, right. uh, and it is, there's just so much that's in there. It feels really comprehensive. So that was a lot of extra as far as like, my relationship <laughs> with this movie is. Sure. But you asked for part of that, so I gave you more. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Doctor Doctor Taylor. Always, always giving us more. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and then let me quickly read the IMDb uh, description, and then we can get into it more. But there's a very brief one sentence description, and you can give us more of a description of the movie. But here, here's the here's what they say about it on IMDb: a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. So that's what IMDb tells us. A shape-shifting alien is hunting our our heroes, Kurt Russell and, and the rest of the cast. But what, what do you, how would you describe the movie? Well, I'm, I'm already struck because I didn't look up um, the IMDb description beforehand because that's your job, obviously. Mm-hmm. So you do that. <laughs> Um, but even describing the alien as hunting them, like, I don't know if I would have used that verb for the alien, Uh, like absolutely the alien is a threat. Um, but it almost seems more reactive than proactive or something in between in its relationship with the, with the crew. But my, (laughs) we'll see if I could do this, how I did this earlier. Uh, I, I gave in my mind, a perfect synopsis of the movie. Absolutely perfect. That, okay, so you've got opening scene, they're in the Antarctic, someone's shooting at a dog. Why are they mm-hmm. doing that? Who would mm-hmm. want to kill a dog? Boom, Norwegians, right? Mm-hmm. They're the <laughs> uh, and of course, there's our, there's our crew. They're the ones that are asking themselves, why would anyone be trying to kill a dog? They, mm-hmm. you know, they, they fire at the Norwegian that's left over. Um, they take in the dog, they go to the Norwegian camp, turns out lots of things went down, everyone's dead, including a crispy, unidentifiable being that they take mm-hmm. back to their camp. Um, this unidentifiable being turns out to be alien slash human. Like there are mm-hmm. some things that are very human about it. In the midst of all that, turns out dog is an alien. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is, who is the alien? Where is the alien? So on and so forth. That is the movie. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant. Just, Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Very nice. Very nice description. I also liked the way you described one of the uh, alien carcasses as crispy. That's, um, I, I think that... <laughs> You know, that, that really portrays, or dem, um, you know, um, expresses the horror of uh, of uh, the movie. The KFC, Extra Crispy, you know, people have certain things in mind when, when they hear that. So, yeah, so. I was thinking more along the lines of like a, like a barbecue with like a layer, you know, of like crispy fat yeah. or skin or something on it. Like had they needed to, I think they could have eaten that alien. Yeah, yeah. And if you've ever... Would- yeah, you know, and if you've ever requested medium rare, and then you get something back that's just very charred and well done, that's that's horrifying. Uh, oh, yeah. So yeah, and I think that's what John Carpenter was going through or going for in that moment. Um, and the the special effects. Uh, this movie is um, 
uh, known for its practical effects. Um, what was it like for you? Uh, you know, maybe growing up or watching this movie recently and seeing seeing the the monster, the thing. I appreciate it more and more because we just don't see practical effects, and I yeah. sound like a, an old fogey, but it's so true. Um, that we just don't see people doing practical effects for things like that anymore. Obviously, it's all CG. Um, and rather than feeling like this is outdated in some way, it actually makes it more real. Because the first right. time I watched it was still probably pre-computer-generated stuff in the way that we have now. Yeah. So it wasn't very good. Um and so I appreciated it then, but I almost appreciate it even more now that it feels like you could get up close mm. and look at the alien, like you can touch it and it's there. Right. And there's something about that that is not only horrifying, mm -hmm. right? It makes it feel like it's a being that could actually be there or a being that could actually hurt them. But it, for me, it makes it maybe a little bit more immersive. You know, you can imagine this thing existing more. Yeah, and you can just you can put your hands all up in it and around it. And with some of those scenes, like the autopsy scenes and the um, the scene where, oh gosh, I told you I was going to do this, but the guy gets his arm bitten off uh, by Norris, who is on the table. Like that, it, it just feels like it's all the more real. Um, and of course, the transformations makes me think actually of um, an American werewolf in London, like in the sense that that werewolf transformation was such a big deal because it's practical effects and all the transformations that happen in this movie from dog to alien to human to some hybrid they're so cool they're so artful so right. i just i just love it <laughs> yeah it was great um there's something about a perfectly clear computer generated image that oftentimes isn't really that scary or that convincing, even though it looks much more real sometimes, or it looks perfect and, and clear. It's still like part of me just knows it was created on a computer and then not, um, I'm not getting absorbed into the story as much. And then when there's something solid, when there's something tangible that is maybe kind of in the shadows that you can't fully see and you know it's it's having a real impact on the world like uh, it's really um, um it's a real object that other people can can touch and has and um and yeah just interacts with the world more something about that just seems much more um convincing where i I can just watch it and, and go along with the story and just kind of be absorbed into it versus knowing like, ah, well, there's no real danger or there is, yeah. you know, they're looking at a tennis ball or, or something like that. And the transitions from, from, you know, creature to creature or human to creature are much more visceral because it's not, um, you know, a little bit of a, a computer, generated glow over someone as they just morph into something like you're actually seeing you know skin or you know something that's supposed to be skin open up and then something that's you know supposed to be an alien coming out of out of that skin and it's just it's a lot more um 
um, bizarre. It's a, it's a lot mm-hmm. more eye-catching than something seamlessly transitioning very quickly through computer. Yeah, it's almost um, like the word like excruciating or like painful comes to mind. Like in the way that that skin and bone rips and tears, it's it's got a, yeah, just like a visceral quality to it. I also happened to look up, um, happened, I did it on purpose. I went on the Reddit for the thing, which honestly is just a lot of screenshots, like screen grabs and people just loving this movie, which I think is great. But one of the things that I saw is that they, someone bought, it was for sale and someone bought Norris's head when it turns into the spider thing mm. and it's got the legs coming nice. out. Nice, okay. Was sold for 600, almost $600,000. Wow. Which just makes me think of this, like that head existed. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. someone bought it, which is yeah. just another another kind of horror but mm-hmm. i thought i would share that because i was fascinated. <laughs> yeah that is cool yeah when i think of movie memorabilia um well sometimes i think of planet hollywood which is amazing that <laughs> i grew up in the 90s and um you know i think of you know luke skywalker's lightsaber i think of um you know uh Rocky Balboa's um, gloves or Apollo Creed's American flag trunks, but uh, Norris's spider head. <laughs> I, I didn't think of, but that's that's out there. That, that's awesome. It's awesome that that is on somebody's coffee table or yes. above their fireplace. I love I love the idea, specifically coffee table. I want to run mm-hmm. with this for a mm-hmm. minute. That you could put like a glass top over it, you know, and it's it's standing oh, on these bent legs, and yeah. then you can kind of just see it, and it's a centerpiece. Mm-hmm. And I love I love imagining things like that in the context of a completely average home, <laughs> particularly yeah. like a modern farmhouse home. Sure. And then there's just that. That's what makes it oh, just mm-hmm. stand out all the more. Yeah, and then everyone's well. A door-to-door salesman comes and looks at uh, looks inside, catches a glance. A- just a glimpse of that. And yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. And then they don't come back. They don't knock on that door again. So it, it works. Um, yeah, and go to, so going back to uh, uh, part of the movie or the beginning part, we see a dog running through, you know, the snow being chased by a helicopter being shot at and um, uh, sticking with the, the theme of like realism. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I, I think there's something about that that makes people, no, no matter what, go. Oh no! What's what's yeah. going on? We don't we don't know if that dog is a good boy. We don't know if he's a bad oh, boy. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> are, are you suggesting that there is such a thing as a dog that is not a good boy? Well, it turned out to be true in this movie. And it wasn't a dog. That's the thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I wow. just. <laughs> you got me riled up there. Could not let So my my gut instinct is to think that's a good boy. We obviously the helicopter people are bad, um, and even knowing that it's a horror movie, I thought, well, maybe the bad thing is coming from the Norwegian camp. Maybe the dog is the survivor. 
uh, you know, perfectly possible. Um, and then even with some cues telling me otherwise, it still took me a while. It's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, maybe this creepy music is playing whenever the dog's on screen because the dog is in danger. You yes. Know, we, we don't know yet. He's could be a good boy. And then finally he goes into the kennel with the other dogs. And then we find out that the kennel was filled with, with good boys. And uh, that dog was not a good boy. It wasn't mm-hmm. even a dog. That's right. Terrifying. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think as you were talking, you're so you're so good at oh, thank you. just spurring all kinds <laughs> of ideas. I don't mm-hmm. have to do any work for this. Oh. <laughs> um, but as you were talking, it made me think about because I'm with you on this. You see the dog and you are just suspending as much as possible any thought that yeah. the dog could be the threat, could mm-hmm. be the danger. But I would guess you know, it's not my first time seeing it, neither is it yours. I guess we probably didn't do that for the crew. You know, yeah. of course we do that for animals. We're like, mm-hmm. there's no way you could be the mm-hmm. alien. But I, I would bet that most audiences are being very suspicious of mm-hmm. all the people and not offering them the benefit of the doubt that we offer dogs. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that this is valid, of course, that mm-hmm. as we said, all dogs are good boys if right. they are in fact dogs. But it is, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I noted down that I don't know that I paid attention to on other watches was that when Alien Dog, when the thing gets put into the kennel area with the other dogs that they have at the camp, the other dogs pretty immediately respond right. to the thing. They're like whining and they notice that something is off. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting that the dogs can tell this is not a dog but the humans can't do that they can't do that to one another and i i don't know how intentional that is but it was just an interesting thought to play around with is they knew before he started transforming yeah yeah and and i wonder um if it was because of the behavior like you know the when the dog came in he was um a little slow to come in. He was a little deliberate and um, he kind of uh, sat in, you know, in some kind of um, uh, ready position. So I wonder if maybe if it was behavioral or if it was odor or pheromones or or something else, because it's hard to say, because now thinking about the humans for a second, it's watching the movie. It seemed as if, it's possible that the people who were already starting to turn into the thing didn't actually know that they were infected and turning into a thing. It, it wasn't yeah. fully clear. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's so scary just mm-hmm. to think about to the idea that someone or anyone could be infected or, or not be what they think they are to yeah. have that sort of crisis of not knowing that something is happening to you that's that's horrifying right right and we mentioned norris already uh norris one of the characters um uh i can't there there was so little exposition in the movie i can't remember if they mentioned him having health issues beforehand Mm -hmm. but as they're trying to secure the uh the camp norris is running around he seems scared he clutches his chest once or twice. He's expressing pain. And then when he later gets into a scuffle 
with McCready uh, played by Kurt Russell and and there's a, a big um you know there's a, a big ruckus then uh Norris falls over and has a heart attack or or something uh and it so it seems as as if if Norris knew that he was already infected and he was a monster he wouldn't be scared he wouldn't be running around by himself trying to secure the the camp maybe when he's around other people but not when he's by himself and then he still had some kind of um heart attack or some kind of medical event so it seems as if the the thing will take somebody over the other person probably isn't even aware of it and then the as they're turning into the thing they still have all the vulnerabilities and health issues and lack of awareness and stuff like that 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 the original human had yeah yeah which does again it that just sounds horrifying mm -hmm. even with this idea you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the practical effects the idea of there's being like a, a creature that's in the shadows that you can't fully see that in horror right and this is so on the nose of course but it's worth yeah. saying that the unknown like the obscured threat is scary i think about being like a little kid and we might have talked about this already in, in another episode but but being a little kid and and if a parent or an adult was saying you got to close your eyes during this scene that yeah. what you imagine is always so much worse than what yeah. is actually on the screen that when things are obscured that's where that's where horror lives. So that in that transitional period of being taken over, just how terrifying that would be. Right, right. And there is a scene where they're, um, uh, they're McCready is trying to do a, a test of everybody because he gets the idea that um, that any part of a thing or the thing is alive and a creature in and of itself so what that means is that um, if there's a, a piece of the thing or some blood then when that blood is threatened it'll try to save itself so then he has the idea of taking a blood sample from each person and then moving to burn or destroy in some way the at least part of the blood sample and each person in, in that in that scene, each person who's being tested is anxious and stiff and their eyes are on McCready doing the test the whole time. And then afterward, they take a huge sigh of relief. And then and then after they sigh in relief, they get angry. Yeah. Get, yeah. And then they say, I knew I was me the whole time. I'm I know I'm human, damn it. But uh, they weren't behaving that way before. And then there's an interest. So the thing is, is very hard to, to get a handle on because the person who was infected in, in that scene was kind of resigned and wasn't staring at McCready. And then he kind of, um, before McCready does the test, he even does like a little shrug, like, oh, oh, oh here we go. Like it's subtle, but he gives like a little bit of a shrug. And then that, and then the, you know, chaos kicks off and and that person, Palmer, turns into a, a monster at that point. Uh, so 
it seems like for the most part, people aren't really aware. But then when they're in danger, when the thing is in danger, now maybe all of a sudden the thing takes over and and the human is now gone and it's just it's just the thing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me think of when um, I think it was McCready who said this first, that that the thing doesn't want to be found out too soon. Yeah. Right. So that it can continue to infiltrate. And from a survival standpoint for the thing, how advantageous that would be to, yeah. to lay low and to have its host in that mm-hmm. moment be afraid and to not know that it's being taken over. Um, that, that, yeah, not knowing, not making its presence known is a huge survival trait for this yeah. creature, for this being. Yeah. And then now, um, um, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I, I practice CBT. Uh, I think maybe you do more, uh, that psychodynamic work, but now I'm starting to wonder, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, uh, is there something, um, uh, applicable there to, to real life? Like, what are there, uh, what do you have to say about people who, you know, maybe all of us who have something going on in our unconscious and then, all of a sudden it, it, it comes to the surface. Maybe I'm grasping, but I think something's there. No, I like this. You're, you're baiting me in a way that I enjoy. So <laughs> this, this is fine. Um, mm-hmm. Well, if we're talking about a psychodynamic way of mm-hmm. thinking about defenses, mm-hmm. right? That the ways that we, things, things remain unconscious. Like it's, I would say that's also for survival. That's a good thing. I mean, people get, um, people get wary of calling something a psychological defense, but the reality is, is we all have defenses and it's a good thing. Like we don't want to walk around through life being defenseless. Now, sometimes it is defensive to not know or to not Mm. be aware. And so uh, that could be, you know, dissociation we wouldn't necessarily call that a defense you know you could practice from any modality and acknowledge that dissociation is a thing that happens and it's instinctual and it's to protect Mm -hmm. us from things that feel unbearable and to lesser degrees we could also have ways of just not knowing things and that that is for our survival and when that gets too frequent or too severe that's when it becomes a problem Mm -hmm. um there, I, I know I mentioned this in another episode, but that humor, right, is okay. another defense. That technically we are distancing ourselves okay. from the intensity of feeling. And hey, that's that's a helpful thing sure. from time to time. What a, what a good thing. So, yeah. yeah, I am very pro-defense in the sense that like, mm. yeah, let's know them, but no need to rip them away too quickly or sometimes at all. Yeah, They're yeah. Good thing. How many of your clients were um, infected by aliens and were unaware of it? This is a great question mm-hmm. because I think, I mean, who's to say, are they infected or am I infected? Mm-hmm. Are we both? Right. As if we were both infected and I was doing therapy with someone and we maybe didn't know that, mm-hmm. but the thing inside us knew that, it would mm-hmm. know that we were not a threat to each other. Right? right. So there's so many layers to this. And mm-hmm. ultimately, I don't know. I- <laughs> yeah, great point. That's that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that one before. Uh, because uh, McCready, Kurt Russell's character, 
sort of takes the lead uh, at, at a certain point in the movie and um, uh, he employs certain strategies, uh, you know, like trying to stay in pairs or in groups. Um, and, and like, like you already pointed out, he kind of, he kind of laid out the rules of the game at a certain point where he said that, um, you know, he figured out that, that this thing wants to stay hidden. It wants to stay in the dark and it's only going to attack when it's cornered. So then, um, we need to, or we can kind of stay together and, um, and we need to be smart and, and think things through in order to figure out, you know, who is infected and, and solve this problem. So he, he sort of lays out the basic ground rules. And, um, and that was one that, that I hadn't quite thought of that if two people are infected, but don't know it, then the thing wouldn't be threatened and wouldn't jump out to attack at that time. So McCready just he he missed he missed one uh, well, he, I think he missed a couple actually but that, that was <laughs> one that that he could have thought of ahead of time and McCready at the very beginning of the movie I think it might be the first scene or at least one of the really early scenes he's playing chess against yes. a computer and then um, uh, I'm I'm going to assume that he does this often this is a uh, uh, you know, a, a favorite pastime of his. And then um, there's a very interesting, um, you know, incident that happens where he's playing chess, he loses to the computer, and then he um, he takes, and, and he's also, throughout the, the, the movie, he's drinking scotch or something. I, I forget, he's drinking. And then he takes his drink, pours it into the computer, and then says you cheating bitch and then walks away like (laughs) so that lays out a lot of what's to come where mccready is a strategic thinker he's thinking in steps you know he's planning he's thinking things through and then sometimes when things don't go his way he will you know say screw it all and try to flip flip the board from the table, and uh, and then have a drink. Um, so so that's that we we see that from the very beginning, and then that kind of also plays out throughout the movie. That's a good uh, it's a good example of that phrase, right? That like past behavior is mm-hmm. the best predictor of future behavior. Mm-hmm. And so for all of us, you know, to think about how do you respond in traffic. How do you respond when you're playing video games online? Well, if you ever ask yourself, what would you do if you were in Antarctica and there was an alien that was infiltrating your camp? Just think about how you respond in those situations. You got your answer right there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And um... also, that is an oversimplification. Not <laughs> <laughs> <Not> entirely. <laughs> it is an oversimplification. Um, there, there is a common phrase in sports, uh, and it's probably used in other in other areas where uh, people will say the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And although it's not necessarily true, it's not it's not one hundred percent accurate. There's a lot of truth in it because um, uh, there, there's there's mental skills. So if you can stay calm under pressure. Um, 
you're usually going to be able to do that in a variety of situations. Not always. There could be certain situations that are much more challenging. But for the most part, you're able to stay calm under pressure. If you can communicate, if you can work well with others, you know, in a group project at school, then you could probably also do it at work. And you can probably also do it with your family and, and in different areas. Um, so we see that uh, McCready is a, a chess player. Um, and, you know, who knows how good he he is, but, you know, he enjoys chess, or, or at least he plays it when he's bored in Antarctica. Um, and chess teaches people certain skills, critical thinking, recognizing patterns, uh, mental endurance. Um, you have to uh, stay focused for an extended period of time. And then, you know, uh, McCready is under a lot of stress. Everybody's under a lot of stress. So maybe he doesn't always make all the best decisions, but he definitely utilizes those mental skills throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I, I, I was prepared this time um, for the question of like clinical application, at yeah. the end of the episode, I'll, I'll say a little bit about what was on my mind with that this time. Sure. The, the idea of these different skills that someone like McCready or any of us could be really intelligent, really good at problem solving under average circumstances yeah. when he's not distressed. But when faced with escalating pressure, yeah. emotional overwhelm, dysregulation, that those skills sometimes can cannot be functioning sure. to their maximum capacity sure. and how important it is then that you know we could have the horsepower to do different things yeah. like you know be strategic in our thinking or to solve problems in a sophisticated way we could have that capacity but we're not always accessing that capacity sometimes when we most need it right. not because we're dumb or not because we don't have those skills, but because maybe we don't have the emotional skills to offset, you know, what we would need in that situation. So I, I think this the situation that the crew is in is a really interesting one because the argument for the amygdala being online right. or being in primal instinctual survival mode, there's a good case that they should be in that mode, which right. is not a sophisticated processing mode. You know, you're right. in reptile brain. And yet they're sort of going back and forth. Like, yes, this is an instinctual situation. You're in real danger. You got to do something. But also they're trying to be thoughtful and think long term and kind of do this battle of wits with the thing. So it's a really interesting and demanding situation that they find themselves in to survive, which even then, I mean, is the question their individual survival? Right. Or is the objective the survival of, of humanity, which is what Blair... Um, before he kind of flies off the handle, he mm -hmm. calculates that if the okay. thing makes it to civilization, I, I did the math, it's like three years or yeah. something before yeah. the alien fully infects the earth. So that's also, I mean, to imagine as a group, you're not just thinking about the survival of their immediate group, but really it, it seems to be about the survival of humanity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and going back to McCready's chess game, he does, he sort of flips the board in a sense by destroying the computer. And in, in 
the situation that he ends up in with the thing, that is actually um, uh, a good fit for that moment. Because if his survival drive was, was stronger, if he was thinking more of himself and how to get out of there, um, he might not have um, uh, committed to blowing up the entire camp and and he he was able to convince the other guys pretty clearly maybe because they also saw what happened and maybe they also doubted their survival but he just kind of simply said something like we're not going to survive we're not getting out of here let's make sure that thing doesn't survive either and then they they both just kind of yeah okay and then they they both start um rigging dynamite or, or whatever it was tnt i don't know um but if he was more committed to his own survival then it could have been more of a drawn-out process for him to realize that they're not going to survive or or he might have just wanted to keep fighting for his own life anyway mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is i i was wondering too what you thought you know, this idea that McCready does become the leader of the group and just kind of by natural situation and predisposition and all that. But I wondered what you thought about the relationship between McCready and Childs, mm. because they they kind of had a lot of one to one tension in different yeah. moments. Yeah. And we like we've said before. We, we barely get to see any of the backstory, um, any of the character development. Um, so it's really hard to know how they feel about each other, except for in that moment. Early on, I, I got the sense that uh, McCready respects Childs and, and depends on him. Um, there's the, in, During the kennel scene, um, McCready is shooting away at the at the monster and then he says get childs get childs and then someone runs and gets childs um and then i would have to watch it again but i think there's another scene or two kind of like that where mccready just oh childs i'm gonna need you know he just he's requesting or asking for some kind of support um so i think they respect each other they count on each other and then now they're in this really tense situation and now they both want to survive and they're both suspicious and, um, and they, they both kind of see each other as possible dangers, which, which is, you know, accurate. Um, because uh, if McCready is the thing, then Childs and everybody else is screwed. If Childs is the thing, then McCready and everybody else is screwed. So at the very least, they both, they understand that, that they're both capable people. Yeah. I love, I love the emphasis that you made on their relationship as much as we get to see about it. Yeah. Really before things intensify. Cause that's so, that's so true, right? That the people that we count on for support um, also if that relationship is stressed that we do feel the most tension about, yeah. you know, if you were relying on this person, if you trust them, respect them, you kind of held each other accountable, that we would see the most tension in that relationship, yeah. not because, 
not because they're distant from one another, but actually because they are close. I love that. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And then the ending, they, the, the movie is, you know, perfectly ambiguous. There's so much to think about the ending in your mind. When you watch the ending, um, is Childs the thing now? Is McCready the thing? Do they survive? Like, what, 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 did, what sense did you get about the ending? I feel like this isn't every movie, but in this movie, I feel like I am no fun because mm. sometimes I'll speculate. In this one, I I just want to sit back in the ambiguity, and that just mm. feels truer to sure. me. Now I recognize this is not fun to. For us talking about it, sure. I'm much more interested <laughs> yeah. to hear your theory. Sure. But for me to just sit back and be like, "Wow, I don't know," um, yeah. it's more ominous that way. It does make them seem more human, ironically, and yeah, yeah. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, well, I was looking into it, and there's a there's a couple theories, and just to describe the scene very briefly, um, McCready just blew the hell out of the camp. The camp is gone. It's up in flames. Uh, so no more camp, no more shelter for McCready. And he's carrying uh, a bottle of scotch or some kind of alcohol. And then he, and he's exhausted and covered in frost and, you know, his strength is gone. And then he finds a, a space to, to just kind of rest for a second. And then here comes Childs who disappeared, you know, 20 minutes earlier and the heroes that we saw were suspicious. Like, oh, we don't know what happened to Childs. We don't know if he's a monster or still a human. And then Childs says something like, oh, I saw Blair, so I went to go run after him. And then I got lost in the snow. And, and here I am. And then uh, they have a little bit of an exchange. And McCready says, and, and they both acknowledge that either one of them could be the thing. And then uh, McCready says, yeah, but... You know, if one of us is, we're not really in a position to do anything about it. And I think uh, Child says, well, what do you want to do? And McCready says, why don't we just sit and wait to see what happens? Say, all right. And then uh, McCready hands the bottle over to Childs. Childs takes a sip without hesitating or thinking too much about it. And then McCready laughs and... You hear, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> so there's something going on. Now, one fan theory is that McCready had a bottle full of gasoline and not alcohol because oh. he was just, yeah, because he was just throwing Molotov cocktails or whatever they're called. That's one theory. Actually, I don't buy into that theory because even though he was exploding things, Throughout the movie, you see him drinking. Yeah. So I, th I think he's just having a drink. And then another theory, which I did believe for a while, is that because they already established that a single cell could infect somebody, so no handling anybody else's food, be, you know, be careful. So then that means that uh, it, Childs was a thing because he didn't have any hesitation so he didn't care if he was infected or not i did buy that for a while but then i thought well they also both acknowledged that they're going to die 
and they both acknowledge that there's nothing, even if the other person is a thing, they can't do anything about it. So let's just sit here until the end, basically. So then when you think about that, then Child's taking that sip, you know, makes perfect sense. And then McCready laughing could also mean, haha, yep, we're going to die. So, so it's perfectly uh, ambiguous and, and who knows what's going to happen. That I, I'm obsessed with those <laughs> theories. Um, they're, they're thought out, e- even if of course we can counter them, but that's the mm-hmm. fun. And this is why I'm no fun. <laughs> I did see, I saw another fan theory, like called the eye gleam theory. And apparently mm-hmm. this came mm-hmm. from the guy that was doing the lighting yeah. that whenever someone was the thing, like their eye would gleam in a yeah. different way. And that that shows who's the thing at the end. But spoiler alert, John Carpenter said basically that's bullshit. I, I think he said that's bullshit. He has no idea what he's talking yeah. about. It, it sounded, I felt kind of bad for the lighting guy because he, he ripped him. He's like, this guy yeah. doesn't know anything about <laughs> the lighting. But in, but in that response, he also said, I know. I know who the thing is at the end, but mm. I'm not going to tell you, basically. Oh, wow. Um, but we get to stew in our own suspicions and sort of join the crew in that. How do we try and decide who the thing is? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's probably more fun to just, to just not know and to, to wonder about it. Um, Now we don't, we don't have a ton of time left. We need to keep today shorter. Um, What would you do as a psychologist, as uh, you know, a therapist, as a friend, I don't know. What, what would you do to help anybody in this movie? Well, kind of going to what I was saying before, I don't know that I would be much help in the moment. Sure. You know, I see this as a group of people that are doing the best that they can. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm not some all-powerful person that could say, mm-hmm. well, this is what you needed in that moment, especially as a therapist. I mean, sure. geez. In my group of friends, and I do, I am friends with a lot of psychologists, we often joke about what what our role would be at the end right. of the world. And a lot of us are just like, I don't know, I'd be useless. <laughs> at least, at least yeah. if you look at us as psychologists, mm-hmm. that we could be helpful to a degree, but most of our practical influence and help would not be based on our therapeutic sure. expertise in any way. So I subscribe to that in this context too. I don't know. I'm kind of useless. But uh, but I but I would think about what I was talking about earlier. This like um, interplay between instinctual survival responses yeah. and higher level strategic responses. That and the way that we talk about this is that when your amygdala is online, when your sympathetic nervous system is online, your prefrontal cortex is not. Um, because they they can't they don't really coexist one is based on like danger survival response and the other is about like sophisticated problem solving and language and sense of time and things like that so i mean the important thing would be having some kind of balance of these you know and and if we think about not being in immediate danger the way to do that to to make sure that if we have for instance if someone has a hyper-responsive amygdala, the way that you offset this is by by engaging in activities that are 
mind body connecting. So this is where like your classic mindfulness comes into play, but also things like, you know, yoga, you know, and, and not just Pilates, not just exercise, but bodily movement that involves awareness of right. internal sensations and thought and things like that. So I'm thinking about that, this, this mind body connection, instinct versus strategy, but then also um, thinking about uh, like, how we move from basic awareness to anxiety, to hypervigilance, to suspicion, and then paranoia. Mm. Like we see that the paranoia comes into play here. Yeah. And that's where arguably they're less equipped to respond in the way that they need to in that moment. Because in paranoia, we're hyper-focused on things that, that can get misinterpreted. So there's got to be some way to bring people back down into a level of observation that's realistic as opposed to distorted. So that would be where some of this like emotion regulation and things like that might be useful yeah. only for the sake of responding. <laughs> um, what, where's your mind going with this, Jason? Actually um, to a similar place. Um, yeah, they were panicking their amygdala was firing for very good reason. You know, uh, it's not like there was a, a rabid dog in the camp. There was this almost invisible threat that could infect all of them and, and they wouldn't even know it. So they were, they're very um, um, uh, anxious for, for good reason. And uh, I think for the most part, McCready was able to keep a pretty cool head and others uh, throughout many different times were able to keep a cool head here and there. And, you know, maybe just one or two people would panic at once. And then the others were good at kind of saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. Um, so, so I think staying together more would have been a, a really a useful strategy because they knew that they should have stayed together and they knew that they needed to stay calm. But then very often they would say, okay, uh, us two this way, you stay here, or you go that way. And then, well, we're probably not going to see that one person again, uh, or, you know, that person's going to be infected next time. Um, yeah. So even though it would have slowed down the process of whatever they needed to, to fix or to address, staying in groups of threes, staying in groups of fours or all staying together and staying within sight of each other and keeping constant communication. Like, hey, I'm, I'm over here now. What are, what are you doing? All right, looks good. I think that could have saved a lot of trouble because um, when you stop hearing that person's voice, you know, that's, you know, when you stop seeing that person, mm -hmm. that person's a goner now, uh, very likely. So I think constant communication, constant teamwork could have been helpful. And I'm not sure if this would have worked, but um, when McCready was doing his blood test, to me, it seemed like he was focused on figuring out what was going on. And then as soon as somebody was cleared, he would untie them and then start working with them. So I think at that point, someone you know or earlier on someone could have said hold on we also want to figure out who the thing is so how about you give us a concession you instead of just pointing a gun at us you know how about we figure out a way that we can 
we can do this test and and not have to just um, assume that you're not going to kill us because you could be the thing and you could kill us as soon as we're tied up. And I think McCready would have paused and then, you know, thought through some kind of answer with the others. Um, so more collaboration, more just kind of open communication cards on the table could have been really helpful, but it was just a really tough situation because the thing, when it was still just the dog, it had interacted with pretty much all of them and it still didn't infect all of them at the same time. It was patient and waited for opportunities. So, you know, it's, uh, the thing was a a very uh, formidable opponent. I like, uh, I like that your, um, what would you call it? Your, your synopsis, your, consultation to this group if you will um it's a very classic horror movie in the sense that don't split up <laughs> don't, don't go off don't say i'll be right back yeah, I just exactly. scream for the 10th time don't say i'll be right back um but so it's classic horror movie but also it's just so true of yeah. group functioning you know subgrouping is a way to dissolve the group mm-hmm. um and to make the group less effective and and i think you know, looking at how well this group arguably did in this situation, they were pretty well teed up for it because this yeah. group existed already. They they had certain roles. They've they've accomplished shared tasks together before. So it is neat to see not just what a group of strangers looks like, not just what a group of friends looks like as they navigate a horror scenario, but what does a team of people look right. like? when they get together and handle this situation. And yeah, I could not agree more about the communication and and teamwork aspect of it. That's so true. Yep, teamwork. It helps in sports and it helps when attempting to defeat a monster. And it helps when um, you're sacrificing yourself. Uh, Or I I guess that's, that's, it, it, it can help in that situation when you're sacrificing yourself a to stop a monster. Um, so that's my endorsement of teamwork right there. Well, Dr. Taylor, AKA Doctor of Horror, this was another uh, very fun conversation. Uh, thank you for coming on and we should definitely do this again sometime. Yeah, for me too. Thanks again. We'll All do right. it again soon. Sounds good, bye. This has been Movie House Sports Psychology. Find me on Instagram or Twitter using my handle at CBT Sports Psych and tell me what you think. Thanks for listening.